Good morning. Uh, if y'all would stand with me as we read God's word, Acts chapter 20. It's going to be on the screen. If you use a Bible that's un- underneath your chair, it's going to be on page 607. Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 25, it says this. Paul, talking to a group of pastors, says, And now I know that none of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, because I didn't avoid declaring to you the whole plan of God. Be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you, has, uh, or has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for three years, I never stopped warning each of you with tears. And now, I commit you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that I worked with my hands to support myself and those who are with me. In every way, I've shown to you that it is necessary to help the weak by laboring like this and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, because he said it's more blessed to give than to receive. After he said this, he knelt down and prayed with all of them. There were many tears shed by everyone. They embraced Paul and kissed him, grieving most of all over his statement that they would never see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that you are the chief shepherd and you care for your flock, Lord. Uh, We stand here rejoicing today. Uh, Not because our hope is in any pastor, but because our hope is in you, Father. You see all, you know all, you're strong enough. There's no foe that can come against you, Father. There's no enemy that can outsmart you, Father. There is no con man that can get over on you. And you're the one that's in charge of protecting us. I pray that we would remember that and lean on you, Father. Help us to embrace your word and the good things that you've provided for our protection. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Yeah, y'all can go ahead and take your seat. Like Tripp said, uh, we're in week two of a six-week series called Who Needs the Church? And all that this was birthed out of was us as pastors sitting down and saying, hey, uh, when it comes to the church, I think in the worst ways, uh, our society views the church as obsolete. They view the church as a landline in the age of cell phones. They view the church as... uh, blockbuster video, you remember those? Uh, In the age of Netflix and streaming, the church seems obsolete. Um, That's in in the worst ways. But even in the best ways, even amongst a group of people that would find themselves in a church like this on a Sunday, uh, it seems as if if people don't view the the church as bad, um, they don't really see it as as all that helpful or they don't know why it is helpful. We say it all the time that we feel like often the church is treated like the silent letter of Christianity. 
Everybody knows that there's a T in the word listen. Uh, Most of us should know that baloney is spelled with a G, but nobody knows why those letters are there. We just know that they should be there. And that's the way that so many people treat church, right? Um, Yeah, I know that I'm supposed to go to church to be a good Christian. However, I don't know why. I don't know why it's useful. And so our hope is that in this next six weeks, we will talk about uh, common objections, things that may keep folks from embracing the life of the church. And Tripp did a great job last week and talked about it's impossible to run towards God and away from his people. This is why you need organized religion because God has created a structure in which you were meant to practice and flesh out whatever truths of Christianity that you espouse from your mouth. But today we're going to talk about, um, and the title this time is, uh, I don't need a middleman. Um, And it's primarily going to be on the role of a pastor. And we decided to use that term because uh, pastors, I think in our day and age, for better or worse, are largely treated as as middlemen, right? And so I think this, people feel positively uh, about a pastor as a middleman, somebody that stands between them and God. When they feel that way, um, it builds up this kind of codependence where they feel like the pastor is their hope. Right, I can't hear God's word without pastor. I can't choose my job without my pastor. I can't choose my spouse without my pastor. I can't experience God's forgiveness without my pastor. I can't get married without my pastor. People view the pastor as kind of this this priestly role, somebody to stand in between them and God. And so what you'll get is from people like this or from a tradition or a background like this, um, the pastor is propped up. And he's provided with all of these yet nice things, right? Not the 2003 Camry that I drive, but with like Benzes and words of affirmation and praise. And they prop him up uh, to a place that he shouldn't be. And there is truth there. The Bible does call us to respect those that God had provided to care for us. But I think this is an extreme, right? Becoming codependent on a pastor and feeling as if, Um, I can't get to God without him, and therefore my relationship with God is what it is because of him. If that's an error, I think the other side is not codependence, but it's no dependence. Uh, We've all uh, been aware of pastors that have lied, that have cheated, that have stole, that have found themselves in adulterous affairs, that have been guilty of prostitution and embezzlement and right those examples are all over the place you can't watch any black movie from 19 right 60 on without some like creeping preacher that comes in and like those examples are abound and so here's what takes place you may have folks that have put their hope in a man seeing that he's flawed And now, if this side says, um, I can't get to God without him, this this side says, I don't want God because of him. If this side props him up and says he is absolutely necessary and vital and I can't get to God without him, this side crops him out and says, just get him out of the picture. And we have these two extremes economists would use this word called disintermediation. 
And all that that is, it's a fancy way of saying, let's get out the middleman. Let's get them out of here. Why go to Barnes & Noble if I got Amazon? Why go to Blockbuster if I've got Netflix? Why pay $800 a month for cable if I have an Amazon Fire Stick, right? It's, it's this people trying to, uh, that's not me endorsing uh, that, it's just saying. But it's this thing, this drive that we have inside to get the middleman out of the way so that we can get to what it is that we love. And so what I want to talk to and spend our time today, there's a lot that we can talk about the role of a pastor. I want to talk about our posture towards pastors. Life is all about managing expectations, and I just want to make sure that you and I have the right expectations. Discontentment takes place where what you hope for and what actually happens doesn't meet up. And sometimes things don't meet up because your expectations are too high and they're wrong. That you thought turkey bacon would actually taste like bacon, and it doesn't. There's disappointment. Sometimes you have the right expectation, and the experience that you have is too low. That you may have come into a church and expected that the pastor would actually be a Christian, and it turns out that he wasn't. Both of those things can lead to discontentment. And so I do want to say, you know, the pastor is not the hope of the church. Jesus is the hope of the church. The pastor is not a hindrance to your spirituality. Satan and sin are those. But there's a wide gap in between that, and I just want to make sure that we fill in that gap with what the Bible says that a pastor is and should be. And so I want you to love your pastors well, that God's gift to the church, but I want you as well to have the right expectations and to hold us accountable. And now as we get ready to dive in, I do just want to throw this out on the front end. Being a pastor, talking about the importance and the role of a pastor can seem kind of self-serving, all right? Um, uh, my wife and I uh, went to the bookstore for her birthday, and so we're at Barnes & Noble, and we're getting ready to check out, and the clerk at the front says, hey, do you want to buy a membership? Um, we can ship stuff to you for free, and you can come in and get a discount. And I told him, well, no thank you, because Amazon, right? Like, yeah, I try to be nice. <laughs> well, after I told him that, he proceeded to harass me um, and tell me about why I should and that I could keep business going on this side of town. And there's folks that have jobs, that work, and have family. And he presented this compelling case, and I felt bad. Um, not bad enough to actually buy it. <laughs> but however bad that you can feel right before you actually do something about it, that's how bad that I felt. Um, and I just left, and I felt like this was self-serving. This is a guy telling me about the importance of his role so that I'll help him out. Listen, that's not what I'm trying to do. So as we go to the text... Um, I'm not going to go to a text where a pastor talks about how helpful and important he is because there's no text like that in the Bible. But what we do have in the Bible is the Apostle Paul who loves God's church. Here's a little background on Paul. Paul was a religious leader. And when this minority group of Christianity popped up, Paul wanted to snuff them out. So 
Paul was like the leader of the KKK to this minority Christianity group. So Paul is on his way to create legislation to prejudiciously punish this group of people. God knocks him off his high horse, gives him this great love for the church, and Paul spends the rest of his life dying for this church. And so as Paul is getting ready to get into a boat on his way to what will be his death, he wants to give a word of encouragement to this church that he's been with for three years. This church that is just about as old as this church is right here. And Paul doesn't have time to talk to the whole church, so what he does is he tells the pastors to meet him in a place called Miletus, and he gives them this charge. He gives them their job description, and it's recorded in the pages of Scripture so that you and I know what it is exactly that we should expect of a pastor. It's no secret. It's there for all of us. And that's what we're going to spend our time on today. And before we go any further, I just want to give you a framework or handlebars to think about what it is that that we're going to look through in terms of the pastor being the middleman. And it's just, the pastor was never meant to stand in between you and God. The pastor's there to make sure that nothing does. The pastor is not to stand on top of you, in between you and God, as if you can't get to him. The pastor is there to ensure that there are no obstacles that stand in between you and God. So three words are going to help us to really fill out this point. So if you're going to take notes, the three words are just this. Look, learn, and lean. Look, learn, and lean. We'll start with look. Starting at verse 17, it says this. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and summoned the elders of the church. Where you see that word, just read the pastors of the church. Those words in the New Testament, when it relates to the church, are interchangeable. When they came to him, he said to them, you know from the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time. Serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and during the trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews. You know that I did not avoid proclaiming to you anything that was profitable or from teaching you publicly and from house to house. I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus. We'll stop right there. Look, as Paul calls them to look, uh, Paul is going to use these words and he says... You know that I was with you the whole time. You know that this is what took place. That as Paul is training these elders or pastors about what their life should look like in the life of the church, he's saying people shouldn't have to strain to look at your life. I've been reading through uh, the complete works of Sherlock Holmes, and one of the things that you see uh, with him is that he'll take, like, a hat. There's this one case, and he finds this hat on the ground. Nobody knows who the hat belongs to because it's just a hat. But he says, ah, well, this hat was made at this time, so it was expensive. So the guy had to have some wealth. This hat has a little hook in the back, and so it was put in there to make sure that if the wind blew, that the guy could get his hat back. This is a guy that had some foresight. But this hat is kind of worn, uh, which means that although he had wealth, um, he doesn't have any money right now. This hat is dusty. 
And it means that um, he comes from a home where he has no wife or his wife doesn't love him because there's no wife that would let him come out the house with a house like that. And so he takes this hat and he says, if you want to find this man, this is what you should look for. And everybody's wowed because he saw what nobody else could see. As Paul's saying what the life of a pastor should be in the life of the church, Paul's saying you shouldn't have to be a private investigator to see these things. Paul's saying it's obvious, and just look at the list of the things that he says. Verse 18, Paul says this, when they came to him, he said, you know from the first day I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time. Paul's life was candid. Paul was present with them, among them. Paul was not just a guy on a screen espousing truths, but Paul was somebody that they saw the truth of the gospel in the context of real life. Not just was Paul candid, but Paul was both consistent and courageous. Here's what I mean by courageous. Drop down to verse 20. He says this. You know that I did not avoid proclaiming to you anything that was profitable. What he's saying is, um, when I came to y'all, I didn't just tell you the stuff that you wanted to hear. It's so easy to spend time talking about stuff that people want to hear and they'll be engaged with. And then when you say things that people don't want to hear, it's easy. And the temptation is for the pastor to shrink back once he feels like he's offended the people that he cares for. But Paul says, I'm not a coward like that. And pastors shouldn't be cowards like that. Um, Our church started off uh, with lots to praise God on. Uh, but one of the things that I lament mo- most about the way that our church started uh, was the cowardice that I exhibited uh, from behind God's word. And it was in, um, I think it was January of 2015 when we were still praying, meeting in Richard's home. Um, and we started to go through our core values in the life of the church. And uh, I had longevity um, and So as we sat sat and talked, I just shared, hey, y'all, if we really are going to be here a long time and do the very things that God has called us to do, do you know what that means? It means that one day we're all going to grow old and gray together. Do you know what else that means? It means that we're going to have to bury one another. And death is going to be a very real part of what we do. It means that we're going to embrace hard times. And at the end of the meeting, people did not leave that room cheering and skipping Uh, They left that room, and there were like a few jokes, like, John, you really do know how to bring the mood down. And, man, we're all here rejoicing, and you're saying that we're all going to die. And and so I left that room, and I felt like maybe they were right. Maybe I was too hard. Is all that really needed? I mean, I know it says it in God's word. Maybe the delivery that I had was wrong. And then in March 2015, Dominique Dawson lost a mentor to death. In April 2015, my brother died. May of 2015, LB's sister died. And on and on and on through the life of the church, through the first eight months until Alfreda Brown, one of our own church members who we baptized a few months back, we buried her. And then in hindsight, all of it was true. And we saw how beneficial that that word was. And what Paul's saying here is, He's not a coward, and a pastor shouldn't be a coward. And so what that means for you, 
is this. Everybody that says nice things to you is not your friend. And everybody that says hard things to you is not an enemy of your joy. If you live your life that way, you'll crop people out of the picture that God had intended for you to look to. We have so much to go, so I can't spend time there. Two, uh, Paul didn't avoid any platform. Look, look, look here. He says, I didn't stop from proclaiming to you the things that were profitable or from teaching you publicly and from house to house. And so what Paul's saying is this message was so important that everywhere that you found him, he was talking about the gospel, not just on the stage, but even in folks' homes. That there's something about the presentation of the gospel and preaching up here where the benefit is uh, it's unbiased. If you and your spouse are fighting, um, your spouse didn't call me and, and ask me to preach about the things that you need. So it's easier at times for us to hear the truth of God from there where it's general and it's applied to all. And Paul's saying, I use that. But then he says, but there's something around the, about sitting and specifically applying the gospel around the dinner table and calling out specific ways that spouses need to repent for their sin, about specific things that are going on in life and church. And Paul's saying that, you know, it's not just that I was up here and I spoke loudly and I spoke true, but y'all know that for three years I was in y'all's home speaking. Paul was candid, he was courageous, he was consistent. Look here at the end, and he says this. I testified to both Jews and Greeks. Paul wasn't partial. He wasn't guilty of partiality or treating some people in a way that he didn't treat others. Here's one thing that I just want to say briefly about the concept of partiality, especially as it relates to the pastor. Notice the breakdown that Paul brings. Types of people. Types. Yo, I spent time with Jews and I spent time with Greeks. What he didn't bring down or what he didn't say was that I spent the exact same time with every person because that's an impossible standard. Listen, church, if you hold your pastors to spending the exact same time with each person that's a part of the church, what you're telling them is that I don't want you to have any friends. Friendship is important to us. It's not important to you. What we don't want is pastors that are partial, that spend their time with just one group of people. And as Paul's saying here, yo, 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 I spent time with all groups. There's not a partiality. But to just be mindful, even Jesus spent more time with three of his disciples than he did with, 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 uh, with the rest of the 12. And so when there are friendships, don't take that necessarily as partiality. Paul goes on and he's not just somebody that's espousing these truths, but he's, 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 com- he's compassionate. Paul used these words, you know, you know, you saw my tears. You saw him crying over people. And Paul, as he's 
addressing these pastors, he's trying to help them see and trying to help all of us see that part of being a pastor is not just bearing, it's somebody bearing their own weight, but it's bearing the weight of the rest of the people that are here, a part of the church. Jesus, in John 11, weeps. He doesn't just weep because of the death of his friend. He weeps as he's carrying and bearing the weight of the rest of the people's unbelief. In Luke 19, as Jesus is getting ready to approach his death, he looks at Jerusalem and he weeps because it looks like a city without a shepherd. A pastor that's worth his salt is a pastor that weeps with and for his people. Paul saying that he was all of this, but... Look here at the end. 21, what did Paul talk about? I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. There are a lot of problems that go on in our world and in the life of the church. There's a lot of problems that go on in all of our souls, but there is no greater problem, no greater obstacle that stands in the way of your relationship with God than the sin that exists in your own heart. There's lots of external factors that would seek to present themselves as the reason why you chose to do what you do, why we choose to do what we do. But what Paul knows is what the rest of the Bible testifies to is that the thing that stands in the way of you experiencing not just a good life here, but the peace and joy and satisfaction that's found in God is the sin that exists in our own heart. And the biggest obstacle is not economic development. The biggest obstacle is not government intervention. The biggest obstacle is not anything else in the world that will masquerade itself as the obstacle to your joy. Those things contribute to how the sin is shaped in our life. But the biggest obstacle is the fact that a very good God has created you for very good things. And you and I think that we know better than God and we don't choose him. And so what Paul's saying is that he's spending his time ensuring that this one obstacle isn't true of anybody here in the church. And so he's spending his time not just providing self-help principles. He's spending his time not just as a life coach. He's spending his time not just as a community developer, but he's spending his time trying to care for the souls of the people by calling them not just to put their faith in Christ. I know that he died on the cross for my sins, but to repent from the very sin that's trying to push God out. Repentance and faith, two sides of the same coin, turning from our sin, not making excuses for why it is that we've responded with bitterness or pride or anger, turning from our sin and putting our faith in Christ that the mediator, the middleman that stood in between us and God was Christ. He died so that he took God's wrath so that we wouldn't have to. And all those that repent and put their faith in him can have that relationship back with God. And Paul's saying, yo, I spent my time telling you 
all that, but here's what I love. Paul tells them to look at his life because I think what he wants you and I to get is that the gospel and the message that transforms our lives was never meant to just be passed down in cold propositions that are disconnected from the warmth of personal relationship. So what Paul's saying is there's this marriage that a pastor is much more than a preacher. A lot of what he does is preach, but a pastor is somebody that takes the truth of God's word through his life, and he spends his time trying to make sure people get it. Henry Mitchell, in his book on black preaching, um, goes back and talks about some of the gifts and the curse of slavery and folks being found in a country where they weren't taught how to read. And so what he said was the curse was that they were distanced from a God that has communicated to his people through his written word. And so there were disadvantages because they couldn't sit down and read the truths of God's word. But here's one of the advantages that he brings out. The quote will be here on on the screen, and he says this. Listen, there is a radical difference between listening to an essay designed to enlighten and listening to a word desperately needed to sustain life. This latter kind of gospel registers in all sectors of consciousness, and it is remembered and used in life, not stored for reference. So where he says reading an essay, think of listening to a podcast, maybe. This mode of interpretation not only makes the gospel come alive on all human wavelengths, but it also has the power to motivate the hearers to practice the word. Our ancestors and their offspring had and have little temptation to theorize. Their culture and their congregations prefer useful concrete visions to learned abstraction. Here's what he means. He says, because slaves at this time couldn't read, the gift was that the gospel was never a message that could be passed down merely on cold pages of the book. The gospel was a message that was always learned in the context of personal relationship. And there was a unique fruit that was brought there, and they were protected in some sense from theorizing the gospel and spending all their time talking about propositions and principles without being face-to-face with somebody that says, what are you going to do about what you know? And this is what Paul's saying. One of the beauties is that with the pastor, our postures, they don't stand in between us and God. They ensure that nothing does. And as we look to them and see their way of life matches up with the propositions of what they say, Paul's like, that's a benefit. Paul lived a gospel-centered life. His life was centered on God's message and surrounded by God's people. This is the call for the pastor. This is something that you and I should expect from our pastors. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on. Not only should we look to them, and we should look, but we should learn from them. And here's what I want to say. Sin is not the only thing that stands in between you and God. There's something else that stands in between you and God. And it's the lust and desire 
for safety and comfort. So Paul goes on and talks about the work that he did here, but he wants us to learn from him, to learn from his way of life. Verse 22 says this. Paul says, and now I am on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. So Paul says, "I'm, I'm getting ready to go. I'm foggy about what the road looks like. All I know, the only thing that I can see clearly is that this is going to be a hard road marked with suffering. Verse 24, Paul says this, but I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Paul wants them He wants the church to look to their pastors as they address sin in the life of the church. But he also wants them to learn, learn this way of life. Paul's not concerned with producing a bunch of parrots that can just repeat the same thing. He's interested in producing disciples that can reason. If you go to a parrot, you can teach a parrot to say almost anything. And so you say, what? Polly wants a cracker. What? Polly wants a cracker. What? Polly wants a cracker. Ask it why, and what you're not going to get is, well, I've got all this water, um, and I don't have anything else to pay. You're not going to get a reason. Paul tells them to look and to be reminded of the gospel, but he's also trying to help instill this motivating force, even with sin out of the way, with our sin being dealt with. It's possible not to fulfill the will of God, not by things that we commit, but by things that we omit. And what Paul's saying is it's easy for safety to stand in the way of the mission that God gave us. And this takes place when you and I overvalue our lives. I found it most helpful if you and I think of our lives as as credit cards. The actual credit card. The thing that costs less than 50 cents to make. The most important thing about a credit card is not how pristine that it looks. The look of a credit card really doesn't matter. The point of a credit card is to testify to the riches of somebody greater. So which one would you rather have? A bruised, broken, tattered credit card with the name Michael Jordan on the front? Or a pristine credit card with the name John Anwachekwa on the front? (laughs) I already told you, I drive a 2003 Camry, right? It's, It's an easy choice because you and I know that the value in a credit card doesn't come with how safe it is in its keeping. The value of a credit card comes in how it's used. Our Lord and Savior was no more precious to us, no more precious to humanity than when he was used up and spent on that cross, when he was bruised, battered, and broken, 
bloodied on the cross, unable to breathe because he's choking and says the words, it is finished. He was used of testifying to something greater. And here's one thing that I, I just want you to hear as your pastor. If you idolize comfort and safety, you will demonize the very God that often uses discomfort and danger to accomplish his purposes. If safety ever becomes your God, you can be sure that the God of the Bible no longer sits on that throne. How do we know that? The pages of scripture testify to it. Joseph, Genesis 37, did nothing wrong. Was was unjustly thrown in jail and kept there. David, who sought nothing else but to serve the king and to honor the leadership that God placed in front of them was chased for 13 years because of his faithfulness to God. And it's no different for you and I. Our God wants us to live for something. And all that means is that we live as if there's something greater than this life and something worse than death. And one of the roles of the pastor It's to call people away from comfort. It's one of the toughest jobs, and it's one of the things that we feel the most ungrateful for. Every morning when I wake up my daughter from sleep to feed her, she's ungrateful. (laughs) She was comfortable. And one of the things that uh, we learned uh, was that um, uh, our daughter was born six weeks premature. And one of the things that they told us is that um, she's going to want to sleep a whole lot and you're going to be tempted to just let her sleep. But right now she doesn't have enough fat on her bones um, to keep her alive. So if you don't wake her up out of her sleep every three hours and feed her at that time, She's going to get dehydrated and she could die. While you think you want her to be comfortable, it could be the worst thing for her. I found the same analogy is true for Christianity. We can chase comfort all the while, have our spiritual lives eaten up from the inside out because there is a day where comfort is going to be ours and an abundance and discomfort will be a foreign memory, y'all, for eternity. And that day is not today. Today, we put an investment in of 70 years, maybe more, of discomfort. And you and I don't walk the path of, we don't walk the path of least resistance. We walk the path of greatest glory. That's where true joy is found. And Paul's saying, yeah, that the church, the gift to the church is that the pastors don't stand in the way of folks' relationship with God. They make sure that sin doesn't. 
And they also will make, make sure that safety doesn't. But here's the last thing that I want to talk about, the last word. Talked about look. Look at their lives. Talked about learn. Learn from them. Learn about God's word from them. And lastly, lean. Lean. Um, uh, when we first brought our daughter home for the hospital when she was about two months old, um, there would be certain times, few and far between, um, that I would watch her all by myself because at two months old, I had approximately two months uh, of experience with babies, right? Um, so my wife would be like, hey, I'm getting ready to go to the store. Uh, I'm only going to be gone for 10 minutes. If you need anything, call me. She's full, so she shouldn't want to eat. But if she does, put the bottle in her mouth. <laughs> Pat her on the back when she's done. After she burps, place her down. It is easy. I know that our daughter can't walk yet, but I've gone through the house and I've sanded every corner down. So there's nothing that can possibly go wrong. But if you get in trouble, you can call me and lean on me and I'll come right back and I'll make sure that everything goes okay. Paul doesn't do that. Look at what he says. Verse 25. Here's where he tells them to lean. Not on him, not on the pastor, but this. 25. And now I know that none of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. I'm going to be gone and I'm not going to come back. Therefore, I declare to you on this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. So Paul says, if something goes wrong, I want you to know that it's not on me. I've done all that I could. Why, Paul, have you made sure that there's not any danger? And he says this, no, because I did not avoid declaring to you the whole counsel or the whole plan of God. Paul said, I've done all that I could do because I did all that God has called me to do. The only authority that any pastor or spiritual leader has is derivative authority that comes from God's word. It's not about what I think. It's not about what Tripp thinks. It's not about what Mo or Rich thinks. It's not about what a pastor thinks. It's about what God says. And our authority is rooted in God has said this. And I think that he's called you to go there. Outside of that, my opinion, although helpful at times, may not matter, doesn't matter. It's God's word. And Paul says, I spent three years ensuring that I taught you all of God's word. I didn't just go from topic to topic and address the felt needs of that. I spent my time, Paul saying he spent his time on things that the church's whole felt was irrelevant. But I taught you God's word. This is one reason why as a church, the normal pattern, the normal thing that we do is we pick books of the Bible and we teach from start until end because we want to make sure that at the end of the day, we fulfill the task that God has called us to do. This is why in a few weeks, me and Tripp are getting ready to go through and teach through four books in the Bible that uh, a lot of us probably haven't read through. How many of y'all have read Obadiah? Second John and Third John. All of those are God's words the same way as the favorite pages of our Bible. And what Paul's saying here is this. I'm going to go 
I am not going to feel guilty because I know that I've done all that I could do, all that God has called me to do. Drop down to verse 32. It says this, and now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. Here's what Paul's saying. You're not going to see me again. I've done all that I could do. I spent my time and I gave you God's word. Um, you're not safe. There's danger. But I gave you God's word. You have God's spirit. You have God's word. Lean on that. Let's pray. I'm out. I think in Paul not overinflating his importance, he knows that the most important thing for any church is not how well they can lean on their pastors, but how well they lean on God's word. Where do you lean? What are the things that causes you the most frustration with your church, with this church? All of us, every pastor that's here, every pastor that is, um, I want you to know one thing. They are temporary. There are three things that absolutely will take out every pastor that has ever pastored. Mortality, he'll die. Mobility, he may move on, God may call them elsewhere. Or a moral failure, he may be so gripped by sin the same way that any other Christian may find themselves involved in a scandalous sin where even if he's repentant, it may be the case that he's dis qualified for a season or for a longer time from being a pastor. One of those three realities will take place, which means this. To lean and to put all of your weight on a chair that is eventually going to be pulled away is foolishness. We want to lean on a rock that's stronger than we are. We want to lean on a chair that's bolted to the ground, that's never going to be moved. That chair, that person is Christ. Christ Jesus that has died for us, that went head on, experienced our worst foe, and came out victorious. And not only did he rise and leave us to go sit at the right hand of God forever pleading with us, but he sent his spirit down to come and abide in us. He's left us his word so that you and I, every one of us, can hear what he has to say without any mediator present. The pastor is a useful tool to come alongside and to help to make sure sin, safety, or even danger, as he talks about here, doesn't come your way. But God is the one that we lean on. We lean on him through his word. Pastors are here equipped with God's word to help you and I lean on his word. As our time runs out, I'll be remiss if I don't spend time. I'm going to talk briefly about one of the most important roles of the pastor, and that's this protection. Look at verse 
28, Paul says this. Tripp had alluded to it in his prayer. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Right here, three things that I want you to see real quick. One, the flock is in need of protection. None of us have everything that we need to protect our own souls. You need to be protected. Two, God talks about the church as the church being purchased with his own blood. It's helpful to think Jesus' blood here is an attestation to the fact that Jesus himself was God. And all that that means is the church, you, us, we're precious to God. God gave his life for the church, so he's not going to leave its protection in the hands of somebody else. Three, pastors are God's idea. The pastorate, much like the organization of a local church, is not something that's just man-made. It says right here, right, be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers. It's the Spirit of God testifying through the people that are a part of the church to affirm, give a thumbs up, or to give a thumbs down to people that are presented as pastors. This is God's idea, the way that God wants to defend his flock. Two more things before we come to a conclusion. One is this, the danger that God has called pastors to protect us from are dangers that are both foreign and domestic. Dangers that come from the outside and the inside. Verse 29, Paul says this, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. When the Bible used this imagery as wolves that are trying to come for the flock, um, it doesn't say like, yeah, yeah, these wolves are not like um, wily coyote who would like run towards the sheep with a fork and a knife in his hand, drool coming down. What he's saying is these wolves are what's called wolves in sheep's clothing. These are men that come their way and they present as if they have this genuine care and concern and commitment for the church at large. And they may even say things that would draw folks to themselves, but it's only so that they could use them. One of the most important roles of a pastor is to protect God's church from that. And so here, as a pastor to the church, here's one of, one of the clearest ways or a very quick way that you can expose a wolf in sheep's clothing, which I feel like in our day and age um, is very prevalent. Um, people that are eager to come into a church and talk about all that God commands a church should do or Christians should do and wanting to receive the benefits and the love of the community, all commands, all comfort, but no commitment. That is to treat the bride of Christ like a prostitute. I want to come in and espouse and get all the benefits, draw people away to myself, but not commit to the actual church that God has bought with his own blood. Not find ourselves in a place where we obey the commands of God to submit to leaders. 
And here's one of the hardest things about being a pastor is that publicly or privately, when you sit around the dinner table or say from up here and talk about those things, um, it always feels like you're the bad guy drawing people away from things that they see is good. And I think Paul's charging these pastors to push through those times. And I think this is left in the pages of Scripture so that all the church can see that same point that we said before. Everybody that says nice things to you is not your friend. Everybody that says hard things to you is not an enemy. Adam and Eve had no reason to distrust God withholding things for their protection, yet they did. We'll find ourselves in the same boat. Pastors protect the church, not just from things that are outside, but look here at verse 30. Men will rise up, even from your own number, and distort the truth to lure disciples into following them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for three years, I never stopped and looked there at that last word, warning each one of you with tears. One of the things that we have to do in the life of our church um, that takes place and we do with many tears and weeping is the act of discipline. And what that is, is when we as a church who have all committed to follow God's word, all of us sinners saying we all need to repent and to put our trust in God, repent and put our trust in God, and every day we repent and put our trust in God. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's not perfection, but it's direction. Are we pursuing Jesus or are we pursuing sin? There are times in the life of the church where those of us, there may be those of us in here that have made a profession of faith and it doesn't match up with the direction that we live our lives. And one of the subtle ways that this can set a church aside um, is to disregard the sin, the unrepentance, and the freedom of forgiveness that comes if we would just be open and honest with our sin and confess to God, we miss out on all that because we can be so focused on. But I don't feel like we're being gracious to them. Where do we get off saying that somebody shouldn't think of themselves as a Christian. And so what can take place in what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 is that just a little bit of that distortion of the truth, just like yeast into dough, it can grow and it, it can lead the whole church away into rejecting the forgiveness that comes with God that's paired with repentance and faith. So what Paul's saying is one of the things we have to protect our church from, one of the things we have to be mindful of is the fact that dangers don't just lie outside of the church as if we just boarded up the doors of the hallway, then we'd be fine. But there's a danger that lies within that we have to be sure to weed out. There's a show, The Walking Dead, and one of the greatest realist... uh, All right, it's a zombie show, but it's not really about that. It's about humanity and survival and all that, but uh, 
one of the realizations in that show uh, came from uh, they thought that the problem was uh, there are zombies outside. We just have to make sure that they don't get inside. But then what they found out was everybody was infected with the same thing so that it, it doesn't matter if you were exposed to things or not, that there would be certain people inside that got infected. And if they were allowed or remained to stay without getting the attention that they needed, a whole community could be done away with. So there were times where they actually had to put the person outside for the safety of the rest of the folks here. This is what God has done, what he's provided for us into his, uh, in, in his church. There's protection that's needed from both sides. I've gone over my time, and so I just want to end with a few things here. As we look to our pastors, as we learn from them, we're to be reminded that we're not to lean wholly on them, but to lean on God himself. Here are just four things really quickly that I want to share. One, actually look to your pastors. One of the things that I love about this text is Paul pulls aside the pastors of this church, plural. Throughout the Bible, the normative pattern is that a church has a plurality of pastors. The weight of leading God's church was never meant to be carried by one man. And so I say this, um, uh, As a church right now, we have four pastors and somebody's call, ability, and even responsibility that they'll have in front of God one day to give an account for your souls is not based on how many times they come and preach from the stage. Myself, Richard, Tripp, and Mo are all equally your pastors, and we pray that God would give us more and more, and our prayer is that you wouldn't be so consumed with looking to one for better or worse that you neglect the gift that God has placed as a team. Two, listen to your pastors. Not just reactively in times like this, but proactively. Seek counsel. And when you seek counsel, um, don't start off with the words, what do you think about this? Lead with the words, what do you think God says about this? What do you think God says about how I should interact with my spouse in marriage? I'm thinking that I want a a divorce. What do you think God's word says? What do you think God's word says about this new job? What do you think God's word says about my kids? Look to your pastors. Listen to your pastors. Three, here, challenge your pastors. Um, We have one shepherd of this church, and that's God. Pastors are under shepherds, which means this. We're sheep too. Um, Ephesians 4 says the whole church works together when every joint does what it should. And so I want you to know you are an active part of the discipleship of your pastors. Discipleship is not something that you just receive from your pastors. Discipleship is something that you yourselves take part in. I've been blessed in the past close to 10 years that I've been a pastor 
by sitting around the dinner table with people in this church, LB and Erica. Um, yeah, I just think so many, Damon and Katoya, so many folks that are a part of this church, Natalie, Caress, that have um, sat down with me and my wife and have challenged and rebuked us where we've been wrong. That's what we want. A caveat is this. Um, uh, challenging people without a commitment to them can come off as overly critical. Um, so don't lead off with do this or else. That's a terrible way to win anybody's ear. Look to your pastor, listen to your pastors, challenge them, and lastly, um, encourage and comfort them. Uh, yeah. Let your critiques um, pale in comparison uh, to the words of comfort and encouragement. Um, and so I just say that personally um, as somebody that has been a pastor for close to 10 years and just knows and has sat with the unique weight that comes with this role. There's nothing else that I would rather do uh, with my life, but there's nothing more difficult um, to do with my life. And so uh, I just want you all to know that all the words of appreciation, the emails, the pats on the back, the notes, like they mean something to us. And as a brother to my family, um, I just want you all to know we're grateful when it's done. And we ask that you would help us out in those. Um, we hate middlemen and rightly so. Uh, they stand in the way of our joy. Um, Jesus is the only mediator in between God and man. Pastors are not. We were never meant to stand in between you and God. We were just meant to make sure nothing stands in between um, you and God. Let's pray. Father, once again, we're grateful for your word. Thank you for um, yeah, just the way that you care for us, the fact that you knew that we would need protection, um, and you provided that for us, Father. With the church, you gave us pastors, Lord. As pastors, you provided us with other pastors, God. Um, I pray that we would uh, enjoy the protection that you've provided for us. Um, and I pray that we would just live our lives, that our church would be filled with the right expectations of what a pastor is and should be. So we love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.